First Thessalonians, we're picking up today in chapter two. As you remember, this is Paul's second missionary journey. And um, he had gotten horribly persecuted in Philippi. And he had to leave that place, went to a couple other places, came uh, to Thessalonica, a major city, major coastal city, uh, major trade routes from there, a very substantial place. And news would go, come to Thessalon- Thessalonica and out of Thessalonica very, very continually and rapid. And so I love it when it says there that these are the guys that turn the world upside down that that became known quickly throughout the world of their faith and their uh, nature as Christians, even in the midst of persecution, immediately uh, after receiving Christ and starting that little fellowship there. Paul was only there three, four weeks at the most, that as soon as that happened, persecution came to that church. And we're going to cover the first 12 verses today. And looking at verse 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much affliction. So Paul is going to lay it out and repeat back to them what happened when he was there with them. So in verse 3 through 5, he's going to tell them how the message came to them. And then in verse 6 through 8, he's going to say what their motives were. And then verse 9 through 12, what was their methods. And so looking at the, the message here, first of all, the message we came, it was not in vain. There was real fruit that came. Now understand, Paul preached to people. Paul preached even to towns, I think of Athens. And there wasn't a response there. That he would kick off the dust of his feet, as Jesus said, and go on to the next town. But Thessalonica, even though they were a town known for their various pagan religions... This was a very committed religious town. So these guys were not giving up their pagan, idolatrous ways easily. But when Paul came in and preached the gospel, it was very effective there. Now, as he says, we came, it wasn't in vain or emptiness or of not. He's he's talking not just in reference to the fact that they received the Lord and a church was started there, but a reference that their character, that when they came, their character was not in vain before them. Why is that? Because people have been saying negative things about Paul, and they're coming to the Thessalonians and say, boy, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? You can't do that back then, but you know what I'm talking about. You guys, you guys really had the wool pulled over your eyes. Paul came in and, and man, he manipulated you guys and you were just put in a trance and believed everything and, and boy, he got you good because he wanted to become famous and you guys are talking about Paul all the time. 
He wanted to get money out of you guys and he left with a bundle of money. Of course, none of these things are true. None of them weren't even close to being true. I think of with Christ. What did they say about him? You're a drunkard. You're a glutton. Then later they said, you're demon-possessed. You do all the supernatural things you do through the power of Beelzebub. And I've heard people say, well, he probably did eat a little too much. Oh, yeah, and he had a little too much demon in him, too. No, these things were ridiculous. They weren't anywhere near the truth. And nor was it true about Paul, but it affected them. Do we, do we understand how negative words really do affect us? I know in my own life, I will not listen to movie critics because if they say one little negative thing, I won't go watch it. I'll hear one little negative thing about a restaurant I was thinking about going to, and then I won't. I, I just, I really hate that I'm so affected, but what, what little energy I had about going and doing it, just one little slightest slur towards that, just said, ah, forget it. Yeah, again, Satan, the world, is doing little jabs at the church, at Christianity today. And, and we're seeing affect an entire generation. And if you look at Germany, that was once the home of Christianity reaching the world, now you would scarcely find a Christian even in the country. England, which was once the home of missionaries going throughout the world, a few weeks ago, it switched to that the Muslim religion now is the number one religion in that country. I just saw a video this last week where there were millions of Muslims marching together in the streets of London, packing out the place. And, and somebody put the note, this is the England you created. And we look country. I, I just talked to a gentleman last night, just heartbroken. Last two years ago now, he lost his daughter who was depressed during COVID and started getting in with drugs with her friends, ended up dying an overdose. A few months later, his nephew died of a phenylene overdose. And now his son is so grieved over the loss of his two close relatives and, and uh, has been drinking and drinking and now he's doing drugs and, and they often find him passed out in the, in the yard, in his car, uh, in, even in the park. They just came out and said that three quarters of kids in their 20s and under are deeply depressed. They deeply hate their life. They do not like living. And out of half of all those people in that age, they think about committing suicide every day. I believe it. <laughs> we have a society that is just twisting itself into a knot. These kids, why we slept... Satan didn't get stronger, darkness didn't get darker, evil didn't get evil, but God's people quit praying. God's people quit going to church. 
God's people quit seeking the Lord. And in that time, they, Satan came in like a snake, like he always does into our school systems, into the universities, perverting the children, my two moms and my two dads. And, and now they have taken it to the next step that, you know, every kid should uh, you know, be encouraged to decide what gender they are at four years old. Sexuality is to be known by a five-year-old because they really do like it. It's insanity. People say the stupidest things. I believe in abortion because a woman has a right over her own body. Does she have the right to take drugs? No. Well, that's what she wants. She wants to kill herself? No, that's illegal. She wants to be a prostitute? No, that's illegal. Well, hold it. I thought she had a right over her own body. We, we tell people they don't have a right over their body all the time. If I said... I want to legalize killing children three and under. You'd say that's ridiculous. Well, you can't kill them once they're past four. I'm a very moral person. You can't kill anybody after four years old. Well, you can only kill a baby 15 weeks. <laughs> but on the 16th week, now it's illegal to kill a baby. That's like saying it's okay to kill a kid who's one to three, but you can't kill him when he's four. You can't, kill a, you can't kill a baby in its first month, but you can kill a baby in its fourth or fifth month. It, it's, it's ridiculous. These things that are repudiated and, and, and nobody's saying the opposite. Because if you say the opposite, often even people in the church are angry. I had a, a lady uh, several weeks ago that came up and, and said, quit talking about homosexuality being a sin. My grandchild's a homosexual. He's the most wonderful grandchild out of all my grandchildren. And I said, I believe that. And I love him and you love him. But that doesn't change sin and the devastation of sin. Sin, like Satan himself, it makes a seed and begins to grow and then kills, steals, and destroys Jesus told us to tell the truth, to go out. Grace, Jesus came with grace and truth. He said, you will know the truth and the truth is what will set you free. And of course, today, you're a rocket scientist if you say men are men and girls are girls and X, 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 Y chromosomes and so forth. You, you sound like you know, you, you, you've, dis, you've discovered the cure for polio or something. And it's just so insane. And so all these little seeds have been planted, destroying our civilization as we know it. And I'll tell you what, it, it's already, even without all of that stuff, we had so much going against us as Christianity began to lose its fervor in our country. Um, probably some 40, 50 years ago, about 30 years behind England, about 60 years behind Germany, and now we are going in the way of extinction. But Paul said, I came in the midst of this evil, pagan, wicked society, and it wasn't in vain. 
Now he quickly says, you guys remember how much we had suffered in Philippi. When Paul came in, remember, he was beaten with rods. Him and Silas. Then they're put down in a dungeon with their uh, chain to the walls. And they began to praise the Lord at midnight and the chains fell off. and The doors of the prison opened. It was a great time of evangelism there in that prison with that mighty work of God. But then they kicked Paul out the next day when he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, we didn't know that. We're in trouble. You can leave. So when he came to Thessalonica, believe me, he had black eye. <laughs> he had a, a, a face that was bloated over here. He had cuts and scratches all over his body. He was limping and hurting and oh, ah. So when he got up in Thessalonica and preached the gospel, you guys know what we looked like. We were a mess. But we knew, just like we angered people in Philippi, we know that, that people who don't want the gospel, what does Paul say? The gospel in itself is offensive to those who don't believe. Why? Because it preaches that they are sinners and that they are damned to hell unless they receive the one way of escape. They receive the one way where their sins can be forgiven. They receive the door of Jesus Christ unto the Father. They don't like, people don't like that. People that know that's true, I am a sinner. I am in fear of dying. I don't know if I die, when I die if I'm going to be right with God. And Paul's saying, yes, God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him, will not perish, issue settled. Will have everlasting life, issue settled. And boy, what a great thing. Paul says, life unto life or death unto death. And so he, he says there, you, you know how we came and preached the gospel in boldness. We didn't back down, even though uh, we really couldn't take another beating after the last beating we got, we knew that we may get beat up again. And we preached there in much conflict. But of course now, Paul is going to make known in the rest of this time we're going to have today, it is the emotional scars that are happening in this moment with the lies and the accusations that are coming against him. And so Paul's enemies are saying, Paul has a horrible character. Paul is a manipulator. Paul just wants your money. And guess what? If they can discredit Paul, they can discredit the message. And people that were there who know Paul, who heard Paul, who saw Paul, are still affected. Was I manipulated? Well, did I, did I get fleeced? And did, did Paul, and Paul is devastated by this and saying, no. Do we understand our words are powerful? Do we understand that? We can say something positive and, and create amazing good. We can say one little bypassing word and devastate things. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 12, where he says, every idle word that a man speaks, he'll give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. James talks about this in chapter three, right? Oh, the tongue, he says. Oh, the tongue. It's like the the little rudder on a ship, or it's like the bit in the horse's mouth. That little tongue in the body of us humans, <laughs> it turns and steers us. But what is that tongue? He said it's a fire, a world of iniquity. Like the little spark just devastating a whole forest, our little mouth with that tongue slipping out causes a world of hurt. It's by nature evil, and it sets on, it's set on fire by hell. No man can tame the tongue. He's a, it's unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless God the Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed the blessings and the cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be. I love what David said in Psalm 141. Put a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. <laughs> I like that. Put an angel and all he does is watch my mouth. I like that. I need that. We all need that. But Paul says something several times. He says, you yourself know as you know. Verse 9, he says, for you remember, brethren. Verse 10, you are witnesses of these things. Now, verse 11, as you know, and many other times he says this, they were deeply affected, even though he has to say, guys, you were there. You were eyewitnesses. There was no manipulation going on. I didn't walk away with the bundle of money. I didn't lie to you or deceive you. With, with things that weren't true, but yet they're, they're, they're being lured in to these negative words by pagan people. Well, in verse 3 through 5 now, looking at that message, for our exhortation did not come from error. The old King James says guile or uncleanness or deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. So you know when we came and we exhorted you, we preached to you, there was no guile in it. There was not somebody trying to proselyte you into our group, into our organization. You can sense it. When the Mormons come, they want you to be a Mormon. <laughs> that's, their, that's the bottom line. They don't want you to believe in God. They don't want you to be free of your sin. They want you to be a Mormon. And if you don't become a Mormon, you can't be right with God because you've got to be right with the organization to be right with God. You fill the guile with the Jehovah Witnesses. You feel sorry for them, especially the little kids they're dragging along eating up their Saturday. But again, they're doing it because they want to live forever. Their, their own doctrine says one of the good works you have to do is go out and witness that you will make it eternally. And if you are a Jehovah Witness that just goes to church but doesn't go witness, you're, 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 
chances are you won't make it eternally. So they're not there because they love you. They're there because they're compelled to do it out of works for their own salvation. But again, they want you to be a part of their watchtower society. If you're not a Jehovah Witness, then you're not right with God. You can sense the guile. We do not have such a thing. We do not think that coming to Calvary Chapel is the only way to be right with God. It's by looking to Jesus. You could be on a deserted island and a Bible floats up and you read it and you believe it. You can be saved without ever going to Calvary Chapel once. Now it's hard to believe. You, you, guys, you, you, guys, you guys know about that guy that was there on that deserted island for like 10 years. And they, they show up and they say, well, what, what's this over here? He goes, that's my house. Well, what's this building over here? He goes, that's my church. And he goes, well, what's the building over there? He goes, that's a church I used to go to. <laughs> Paul says, you guys know there was no guile. There was no uncleanness. This word uncleanness usually is a word used of sexual cleanness. But in this context, I don't think Paul was referring to that. I think he's saying that there was no impurity in the deliverance of the message. There was no, as so often you, you hear people say, oh, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we expect you to be here every week. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we expect you to start giving money. And I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and don't forget, you gotta pray every day. There was no adulterating in the purity of the gospel. Believe in Jesus whom God out of his love, his son that he sent, you will not perish, you'll have everlasting life. That's it. Jesus says, like the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, they lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole because they were getting bit by the serpents. And they, were the they made the gold in So everybody who looked at the, at the bronze, bronze is the medal of judgment, the snake representing sin, Satan, death, evil. Whoever looks to that will be healed. Jesus said, that's me. Why? Because he had no sin of his own. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. Jesus never sinned, but he died. Why? Because he took all our sneaky stuff on himself. He took all of your evil, sinful ways on himself. And he said, that's me. What did they do? They just looked and believed and they were healed. All who look unto me will be born again. That simple, not of our works. So Paul said there was no guile, there's no uncleanness, there was no deceit. I wasn't deceiving you. I think Paul, like every man, wants to be persuasive. And I am sure that he was trying to be relevant. I think of the Athens sermon. Remember, he comes up to Mars Hill and they had all of these gods and they had one to the unknown God. And Paul said, that's the God I want to talk about, the unknown God. And, and so he was trying to be relevant. I, I don't think there's any harm in that. I'm sure he, hey, look at your, your temple to Diana up here. Let me talk to you about this. I'm sure he did those kind of things to persuade them. Paul, Paul wasn't just saying, I share the gospel and that's it. No. Are you a sinner? Can you confess that you are a sinner? Then you need a savior. 
I'm sure that he had that, but it wasn't manipulative. It wasn't with his cleverness that he was trying to sell them. Boy, Paul's one good salesman. No, there was no such thing happening. And he makes it clear, we have been approved by God. The word approved here is a Greek word that is one who's been tested and approved for public office. Interesting. He's like, I've been approved of by God to be one who preaches the gospel as an apostle. So he says, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, when we came, we were not, we were not trying to give a message that, that pleases men. Boy, you have it today, guys, just like the Bible said in the last days, There'd be a great falling away because there'd be an apostasy, an apostasy of the church, the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church. All these churches now are, are you know, flying right outside the, the, the flag of saying, you know, transgendered isn't a sin, homosexuality isn't a sin. All these things are, are God made you that way. And, and um, I was watching a sermon somebody had sent this last week. Uh, I have a list server of, of senior pastors, and and it was called the Sparkle Sermon. It, it, this is, it was Fourth of July weekend, and and it was basically that that Christ was a sparkler too, and and you as a homosexual or a transgendered or whatever you are, you're a sparkle, and and of Christ, and we need to go sparkle to the world, and it was just. I'm here and they're doing the communion and they're waving the, you know, burning the candle. I'm just like the Episcopal church. I'll tell you what, that was the church of England. When it first came to America, it was a very strong conservative church, little, little religious for the Puritans, too religious for us today, but in our form of tradition, but right on. And I'll tell you, I know, a number of Episcopal Christians that are the most solid conservative Christians that are heartbroken over these things. But again, that's the, the day we live in. And Paul says, yeah, to the sinful man, my message would not be pleasing. It would probably anger them. Paul in Galatians 1.10 says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I speak to please men? If I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not as so many, here's the key, peddling the word of God, like selling vacuums door to door. But as the sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We, I'm not out peddling some wares. <laughs> I'm not coming in to peddle some religion because, uh, you know, there's more money in it than selling vacuums. No such thing happened. And this is what I'm being accused of. You were there, you know, that was no such thing. Or he says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words. Paul, if you go back to Acts, will we'll realize that he was in Athens, where he did try to quote the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic, and it didn't go so well. And after this, he ended up going to Corinth. 
And he saw the purity and the power of just Christ and him crucified. And in 1 Corinthians 2, you guys know this passage well in verse 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. For I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when I came to you, my speech was not eloquent in any way, shape or form purposely. I just told you about Jesus and what he did, that he died on the cross. He was buried on the third day. He rose again. And if you believed it was through the power of God's spirit, not because of my salesmanship, I put that completely to death. And then he said, nor a cloak of covetousness. And and this is referring to somebody wearing a cloak to cover up what their real motives are. You know, they're covering up with their cloak that they really are, you know, the cloak like a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. So eventually after you believed and I got you, Starting down the Christian road, then the cloak came off and you, you found out what my real motive was, why I was there. No, and he's referring to covetousness about money was my goal. And you know, there was no such thing whatsoever. In First Peter 5, he has to tell the pastors, even in his lifetime, that they need to shepherd the flock of God willingly, not of compulsion, not for money but eagerly, and that when the Lord appears, he will give them a special crown for being shepherds of the sheep, truly out of love, and not not for money, not for glory, but just out of love. Well, in verse six through eight, nor do we see glory from men, either from you or from others. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse six through eight, For we do not seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as an apostle of Christ. For we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we're well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because we had become dear to us. You had become dear to us. We did not seek the glory of men. We did not come to to try to be famous amongst you and and you need us. You'll, You'll see that in all religions, they set it up that you need the organization and you need the leaders of that organization in order to do what you're doing. The Jehovah Witness needs the teachings from the higher ups in New York and they need the Watchtower magazine to know The Mormons, you have to come to the Mormon teachers and elders and they give you all the different various books and paraphernalia that you need. Without the temple of the the Mormon church, you can't go get baptized in the temple and and get your holy underwear that you're supposed to wear 24 hours a day and seven days a week. I'm not trying to be funny. That's just true. In the Catholic church, you see that you need the priest to confess you need the priests to give you the last rites. You need them. And and then if you're 
they are the, the ones that get you into the organization and they help you continue with the organization. This is how you know these are cults. This is how you know. Because we, as Christians, we are all pastors to somebody. We're all preachers, hopefully, throughout the week. All of us come and just say, it's Jesus. When I go out and witness, I do not tell people about our church. Sometimes they ask me, where do you go? And I tell them. But I, I want them to just, here's the gospel, believe. And if they pray to receive the Lord, I'm like, get a Bible and start reading it and follow Jesus. Because I don't want to pervert what I just told them, that salvation's without works. It's not about me or the organization. It's about you now following Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 4, <laughs> Paul is, is saying here, the, the truth is the complete opposite of what these guys are saying. Our job is the opposite of being glorifying to us. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9 through 14, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men's condemned to death. We have been made spectacles of the world, both to the angels and to men. We are fools for Christ. We are wise in Christ. You are wise in Christ, but we are weak. You are strong and distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed, beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of things until now. I do not write this to shame you, but as beloved children to warn you. There's no self-glory going on in my ministry. Even angels look at us in shock, he said. Men look at us and go, man, you're, you're like the dirty piece of trash along the side of the road. And then he says, when we might have demands as apostles of Christ. So if you're saying that we did not have the right to collect money, that, that would be wrong. We did have the right to collect money. Now, as we're going to learn here, Paul didn't because the Lord showed him never to receive money from the church he was at. You might want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read quite a few verses there in verse, starting in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to re refrain from working? Paul made tents part-time, uh, to supply his needs and the needs of those who were with him. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as mere men? Or does not the law, the Bible, the Old Testament say this also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you'll not, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? So when the oxen is going around in a circle and they got the big giant stone crushing the grain, separating the, the grain uh, from the stalk and, and the actual wheat, that it'll pop out. And when it pops out of the, the center area, the, the ox can you know, lick up that thing and eat it. And he says, do you go out and, and, and put a muzzle on the ox so he can't eat that stuff that pops out? Or do you let him eat it so he has strength to keep working? 
This is the, and Paul says, is, is God say this because he's concerned about ox is not good enough to eat? No. In verse 10 now, or does he say altogether all for our sakes? Yes, for our sakes, no doubt. These things are written that he who plows should plow in hope and those who thresh in uh, hope should be partakers of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for us, is it as great thing that we would reap your material things? And if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul, and sometimes it was one week in one place, sometimes three weeks in a place, sometimes six months, sometimes three years. And Paul never wanted somebody to say, oh, he stayed there for three years because they paid him a lot. Oh, he left there after three weeks because there was no money to be had there. He never took money from wherever he was at from the church. I think they collected the tithes and the offerings for the, the elders and stuff, but not for him. And it's something God showed him in particular. So no one could ever slur him on the money issue. In verse 13 through 18, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offering of the altar? Verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that should be done so to me. For it should be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. So even though I have the right to collect tithes and offerings for my ministry, I never have done it. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have reward. But if against my will, I have entrusted, but I have been entrusted with the stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Timothy, following Paul's example, was now pastoring Ephesus, but he was not receiving any finances to live on. And Paul has to tell Timothy, Timothy, if I were a pastor of a church, I would receive a paycheck. Those who preach the gospel are to live on the gospel. So he says to 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and 18, that the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially of those who labor in the word and doctrine. I don't know if Paul meant that literally, but give them twice as much money if they're really good at uh, preaching the word and doctrine. But in verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the labor is worthy of his wages. So Paul did want it to happen in the church, but he's saying for him and his ministry, how could anyone say that of him? Now, obviously, these people that were saying that of Paul didn't really know about his ministry, but it was just assumed. Why? Because everybody else did. You got to understand at this time, people were creating new religions all the time, mostly pagan religions, or they would break off and have their own guru specialty as they do in India today, right? Some guy decides he's a guru and puts his leg behind his head for the next 30 years and, and, uh, and people build them a temple and bring him food and, and whatever. This is the way it was. I, I know in Christianity, boy, back in the 70s, 80s, I, I don't know about today as much, 
But there were so many guys that were just putting the screws into people uh, to get money out of them. And many of these guys are multi-millionaires today. I saw the other day that Kenneth Copeland is now almost worth a billion dollars. Benny Hinn, who lives around the corner, he has two mansions right next to each other, worth millions. These, these guys would just, but you know what's bad is when you try to share the gospel. Oh, I know about you guys. I've seen you on TV. No, don't compare me to Benny Hinn or Kenneth Goldberg. These guys who are in for the, the, just so blatantly manipulating people out of money. But yet they assume Paul was that. I remember when I first started pastoring, I mean, I had been pastoring like four months. And if you remember the PTL scandal with the bakers who end up going to prison for, and then right after that, Jimmy Swaggart and that whole thing. And here I am, 24 years old. I've been pastoring for five months and everybody's looking at me like, where's your Rolls Royce? You know, where's your, how many jets do you have? You know, um, (laughs) It was bizarre because I'm like, guys, you know we're not that way. It's ridiculous. But yet, again, they're just assuming that Paul is like these other guys. There is absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. But what does he say? We were gentle among you as nursing mothers. Yes, that sort of uh, gives me the eebie-jeebies to think of that picture, but... Paul is saying exactly what you think he's saying. We gently got you and we nursed you with our own breasts, loving you and feeding you directly. That's that's the spirit we came in, like a gentle mother with her brand new baby. That's the kind of ministry we had. And you guys remember this now. This is how it actually was. But yet... These guys are just pounding on Paul, lying, saying the opposite. He was in there controlling them and bossing them around and, you know, commanding them to do this and commanding them to give this much money and go get baptized and come to this church and and do all these things. There is no such spirit. Jesus talks about people lying about us as we go out to preach the gospel. This is one of Satan's fiery arrows, right? Fiery darts to try to wound us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10, 11, Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. In John 15, Jesus in verse 18 through 20 says, Man, guys, he says in chapter 16, I say this to you that you're not stumbled. But understand, if they hated me, you going out in my name, in my nature, in my spirit, those who don't believe are going to equally hate you. But just like the Pharisees thought in killing me, they're killing the evil one. They're going to kill you thinking you're the evil one. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. They're going to take you off social media. (laughs) They're going to take you off the radio. They're not going to let you have a ministry because they hate you. Of course, if you were of the world and you were preaching a gospel of the world, they would love you because the world loves its own. 
but because you'll preach the same message I preached, they'll hate you and persecute you and say all kinds of manner of evil against you in the same way. But Paul goes on to say, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. That word lives there is soul, our very heart. We, you know we didn't come in like a bunch of robots. We didn't come in like a bunch of college professors, give you a bunch of information town. We preached the gospel and told you God loved you and you sensed our love for you. We told you that you're a sinner, but yet you sensed our heart broken over your sins as much as we were broken over our sins when we first believed. When we talked to you and, and your pagan worship is idolatry and evil in the sight of the true God, we didn't say it to you harshly and condemning. We said it as, as somebody who deeply cares about your spiritual condition. You know that that's how we preach the gospel to you, like a mother nursing her baby. And you, we gave our whole being into you. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 17 and 18, I love this. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So he's saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. This is one of the morning and evening oblations. They would pour out the, the wine on the ground as an offering to God. And it's sort of the, the conclusion of the sacrifice time. In the conclusion of this, after I'm giving myself completely to you, now I'm on my way to death for preaching the gospel. And I rejoice and rejoice with me. But then he says, and even now, I am affectionately longing for you. This word affectionately is a Greek word almost never used. And we don't really know exactly how to translate it. But most believe that it's actually like baby talk. A mother would do to her baby. Saying, you know, mommy loves you type thing, <laughs> goo goo gaga. It's almost that kind of word, just of, a, of the endearment of a, a mother to her baby is the kind of idea. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul truly cared for them. What's that saying? That people often won't listen to what you have to say until they first know that you care, right? Well, Paul is saying, you guys know that the love and the care and the desire and how we gave ourselves to you in the gospel, that we just longed for your salvation genuinely, sincerely. And when you came to Christ, how we took care of you like a mother with her own precious baby. Well, finishing up here today in verse 9 through 12. For you remember, brethren, our labor, our toil, for the laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. For we are witnesses in God also, how devotedly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, 
how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So as a mother to an infant baby breastfeeding, and now as a father to his children, that you were, would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he comes back again to the money issue. You guys saw us spending many hours in the day making tents. We know that's what Paul did. He just says labor and toil. So we were not a burden to you. So we did not ask you for money for food or, or ask you for money to pay the hotel or whatever it was. You, you saw us spending times getting up earlier, staying up late, making these tents. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, Paul said, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. I could have easily have done that, but the Lord showed me that I was not to use that uh, in my unique ministry, uprooting constantly at different times to go from town to town. Later, however, it's interesting in 2 Corinthians, one of Paul's later letters, that he points out the weird, bizarre, twisted way men think. And Paul would never receive money from the church he was at, and the churches began to devalue Paul. I know I used to have Bible college classes at the church. We were one-time extension from the Bible college out of Costa Mesa. And they wanted us to charge everybody X amount of money per credit for the thing. And I, I knew our people really wouldn't afford that. So I, I gave a little bit of money. We just gave it straight to the Bible college. And, and, and um, it was funny because I, at one point I was like, I can't do it. Let's just, hey, you know, we'll just take it out of the tithe and give it to them. But, you know, the classes are free. And I found we, the first day we'd maybe have 30 people in the class. And by the third week, we would have five people in the class. And I, I told him our problem. He goes, did you charge him like we ask? <laughs> and we were like, no, I couldn't do it. He goes, charge him. So it ended up being like $150 a credit. Most classes like three credits. And guess what? 30 people joined the class and 30 people at the end were in the class. It's, it's bizarre how twisted things are. If we didn't have to pay something, then we think it's worth nothing. And this is what happened to Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7 through 9, he says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you may be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. So people from other churches would send him money after he had left there because it was on their heart to do so. And when I was present with you and in need, when I was with you guys originally starting the church in Corinth and in need, I was a burden to no one. I never allowed you to give me a penny for what I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied and everything I kept myself from being burdened to you. And so I will keep, I'll continue to keep that to myself. Then later in a couple of the very next chapter in 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen, he says this, I will very gladly be spent and spend our souls. Though, 
The more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved by you. Isn't that interesting? The more he served them, the more they saw him as a servant. (laughs) The more Paul served them with no finances involved, the less they valued him. Until Paul came to say, the more I love you, the less I am loved by you. I'd say that's true of our human condition. I mean, what's that one saying that familiarity breeds contempt? You know? And uh, it, it is an interesting thing. So he then says, you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. Paul says our example was an intact example. We saw in the earlier chapter chat uh, in verse five, where he says, for you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake and, and to say, follow my example. In 1 Corinthians 11, one, and imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us as a pattern. And then in verse Philippians 4.9, I love this, it's one of my favorite verses. These things which you have learned, received, heard, and saw in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. Wow, that's a powerful example, isn't it? Paul is saying, whatever you learned, whatever you received, whatever you heard, whatever you saw, in me, do exactly what I did and you'll be following Christ. In Galatians 6.16, and as many as walk according to this rule, his pattern, peace and mercy be upon them. And then the final part of that last verse, how we exhorted you, again, as a father to his children, how he exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you that you walk in a manner worthy of God. And so as a father pulling his children around and giving them words of wisdom. That's the way it was when I was with you teaching Bible studies. I wasn't aloof. You know, I I know a lot of pastors that have gotten hurt early on in their ministry. They have spent years pastoring, staying away from people. And when you talk to them, they're generic and plastic and they won't share their life with you. They won't open up with you. They'll listen to you, but they won't share their life. And, and, and they're great in the pulpit, but one-on-one, they, they have no game <laughs> because they've shut that off. And it's hard. I, I know uh, before I pastored here, I pastored a church of thousands, as you know. And I would go to the back and hug and touch and love on as many, but kids, uh, we had four children and they would bring their friends over all the time. We had the college group in our house. It was like 150 kids in our house and uh, every week. And, and people often said that, you know, wow, you're, you're just like you are behind the pulpit. And, and it's like, yeah, I, I knew early on that what I was at home, I needed to be everywhere else. 
And I never did that to my kids. I know so many pastors and missionaries' kids don't want to serve the Lord as soon as they leave mom and dad's house because they were told by their parents, don't tell anybody at church that, that I kicked the dog. You know, Don't tell anybody at church that I cussed at your mom this week. Don't tell anybody you know, that we watched that movie. You know, we got to keep up appearances at church. And the kids would go to church at Twisted like, I hope I don't let anything slip and dad gets fired. No. It's, we cannot be that way. And Paul is saying, I was genuine. You know, when I was counseling you, you know the love that you felt as I grabbed you and, and breastfed you like a mother. You know, when you were asking questions and I answered them, it was like a, a child sitting on his dad's knee. These these little phrases these people are saying, these little accusations and lies they're making, they're affecting you. But you need to come back with the truth. And you know the truth. He said it several times. Remember with me. (laughs) You know, you were witnesses that none of these things that they are saying should have any effect on you. They're not the truth. What do we learn here today? Number one, We need to be bold in our ministry, even if we're battered, bruised, and attacked because of it. If you witness on any amount of degree, even once a week, you'll eventually be told by somebody, get the blank out of my face. And you pray for me, and I find out I'm going to beat you up. And, uh, and, uh, or, you know, the family says, don't come over anymore, or, you know, whatever it is, it's going to happen. What do you do after that going, oh, great, I'm... Everybody can go to hell. I'm not going to suffer anymore. You know, is that what you say? Some people do. They attempt to share their faith and say, I'll never do it again. Let's not forget that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I love that Isaiah passage that says, the word of, goes, word of God goes out and never returns void. It always will accomplish the word sent out. I had a friend of mine who was 30 years, a Jehovah Witness, the leader over England. Then he came over and led a a larger population over Southern California. His name was Peter Barnes, came to Christ. But he said out of the 35,000 houses or 50,000 houses, 35 years, I can't remember now, only five times somebody says, listen, brother, you're wrong. And here's a verse. And those five verses nagged him. And then finally one day, And each of them said, would you just read the New Testament for yourself? Because they're not encouraged to do that. They're only encouraged to read the passages that are in the Watchtower magazine. And he did. And he got born again. But he said, those five verses irritated me for decades. I love that. Remember in John 4, Jesus says, look, one plants a seed Another comes behind him and he waters on that seed. He doesn't know he's watering that seed. But together, they get to see the fruit of it. That's the way it is in the kingdom of God. You just may be watering. You may be the 10th person watering a seed that was planted by their grandmother 50 years ago. You just never know. Third thing is our motive to serve must be to please God and not men. There's some of you guys that do so much here. Men and women, it just astounds me how much sweat, how much labor, how much week after week after week you do. And 
you know, I'd like to say, man, uh, thank you, you're so pleasing to me, but I know that if I do that, you're going to then say, oh, I'm pleasing Brian, or you're pleasing this person or that. No, it's got to get your eyes on the Lord and to say, I'm sweating, but it's for Jesus. It's for his church. Christ loves his church and gave his life for the church. And so now I also love the church and I give him myself for that bride of Christ. The next thing is we need to live godly lives. Be examples to others to walk in a worthy way of God. And the fifth thing, we need to give our lives, our souls to each other in our ministry. Give ourselves, our hearts, our souls, not clinically do our job, you know, punch the clock. Did I actually do the job? Yes, punch the clock, I'm out. But truly, you know, I, I, just, I just know that people are hurting. And I know if we come into church and we're sensitive going, God, here I am as a hand, a foot, an eye. And Lord, I come in and I want to bless and be a blessing. I, I want to be blessed for serving you, for being diligent, to not forsake the God and God and the brethren, to worship you and be a, a beautiful incense to you and hear the word diligently and, and have an open heart to say, God, speak to my heart, not in my head only. And then afterwards to be led by the Spirit. Hey, brother, what did God speak to you? Let me pray for you. God's putting on my heart to pray for you right now. I've had people that heard me on the radio and they call up and, and, uh, and they say, yeah, I'd like to you know, talk to somebody in the Words of Encouragement organization. Well, you are. You're talking to the director. And, uh, <laughs> and they'll say, yeah, God, put it on my heart to pray for you. Can I pray for you right now? I'm like, yeah. Okay, God bless you. It's so awesome when we are led by the Spirit and, and, and we can just pray for one another and encourage or share a verse that God's encouraging you, but to give our lives that we come in, people feel that we're loving them. It's not we're a psychologist and this is a clinical thing, sit on the couch and no, that, that they can feel that our whole souls and our lives are melding into them, that we're asking because we genuinely love them and care for them and our prayer is heartfelt for them. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures today. And we ask that you would do a deep work of grace in every one of us. That all of us here would walk away having been washed in your word. Cleansed by your word. You would send out your word and heal us. That this word would not go away void. But the message and the motives and the message and the, the message and the motives and the methods are very clear of how we do what we do for your glory. And we do ask in Jesus' name. If there's anyone here that needs to come to Christ today, or maybe you're listening by streaming, or maybe you'll hear this message 10 years from now, just cry out to God God, I am a sinner. Just like the Thessalonians. I, my heart is pagan. It's idolatrous. It's lustful and greedy and 
of this world and, and I can sense the darkness of it, the depression of it. I'm one of those people thinking about suicide on a regular basis. Lord, forgive me. Heal me. Be the Lord of my life. And we thank you for that, Lord. And if you prayed that prayer, grab a Bible, start reading it and follow Jesus. And Lord, we thank you again now for all the things you've done. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.